Well, hey, let's dive in. Uh, grab your Bible. Jonah chapter 4. We are on our final, the final part of Jonah. I mean, everything up to this point is leading to this passage. Now, before we get into that, um, I, I don't know if you guys knew this, I love stand-up comedy. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do uh, when we like are going to bed at night sometimes. It's, we just find a random stand-up comedian and put it out there. Uh, multiple reasons why we love stand-up comedians. One of them is they're master public speakers. Um, as beca- one, they do the same bit for a year, and they've mastered it to the point of just uh, delivering it beautifully. So it's, it's great to see what happens when somebody, as somebody who has to prepare something like that on an almost weekly basis, you don't get to craft it to that level of perfection like you do over a year. So it's really cool to see something crafted like that, their wit, the timing, but they're also masters of satire. So satire, if you don't know, let me just give you the dictionary.com definition. Satire is the use of irony, sarcasm, ridicule, or things like that to expose, denounce, and, or deride the folly or corruption of institutions, people, or social structures. Now, rather than continue to explain it, what I want to do is I want to show you, oh, power. I want to show you a very recent um, example by a comedian named Nate Bergazzi, really clean comedian. He was on SNL recently. His monologue was hysterical. But this is a perfect picture of some satire. All of us now are like, oh, yeah, we, we do that, don't we? Like, we have these measurements that don't really make any sense. How many of you forgot how big a mile was until he said 5,280? Like, I'm like, I, I forgot. But it, it's, there's a little bit of, like, ridiculousness to this. And it's, satire is just a beautiful way to help us see, like, not only the craziness of how the measurements are done, but it puts a little bit of a mirror in our face a bit. Like, oh, yeah, we, that's, that's what we're, that's, we do that. We don't, like, I love the football example. Like, is it one or three, you know? It, it, it just is. We, and yet, all of us are participants in some way. Now, we're not, none of us here have the power to change that, but it exposes something. It exposes something that we all are doing. This is what Tim Mackey says about satire. It says, the point is to expose as shameful something that we are all engaging in but won't, don't want to acknowledge that we do it. Now, the, the skit is like, ah, it's not a big deal. It's only measurements. But true satire, when it, when it comes to the point that it puts a mirror in our face to see something that, yeah, this is something we all do, but, oh, how could they do that? And then it puts the mirror and it says, yeah, but this is you too. So, like I said, we are in the, the pinnacle of the book of Jonah. I mean, everything has been building momentum to the showdown between the two main characters of the book. Now, this book is not about how the sailors interact, although they are there. 
It's not about the great fish and what Jonah does in the great fish as he prays. But it's not about the great fish. It's really not even about Nineveh. It's not about how they respond and what they do. That's not the main character. The main character and the main showdown of the book of Jonah is between God and his character and his people and their reflection of that. The ultimate showdown is between God and his people. And so here we are. We're at the end of it. Nineveh has repented. Remember, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. He runs away. He ends up in a fish. He prays without acknowledging anything he did wrong. He gets cod out, vomited out. He then goes back to Nineveh. He gives a halfway message he, with a halfway, on a halfway journey with a halfway heart. And then last week we see him throwing a little bit of a temper tantrum, the fact that God actually did what he said he was going to do. And so now we're at Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. And he's now going out of the city. Let's begin in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plants for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the honor and the privilege of opening it up and reading it and speaking it and hearing it. May we come to know it, but not just know your word, but know you through what you've revealed to us. We play, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the role of a prophet is sometimes to embody the message that they are about to give. So an extreme example of this is the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea was given a message about how God's people have been unfaithful to God as their, as their bridegroom. And so God had Hosea embody that message 
by marrying a prostitute. Now, yes, that's in your Bible. It's, it's an unbelievable story. It's a, that's an extreme example of a, a prophet embodying the message. In a lot of ways, this is what's happening to Jonah right now. And he's embodying it in a booth. So Jonah has gone east of the city, just like Cain before him. There's something about going east of the city that is important. And he builds himself a tent. It, in the ESV, it says booth. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's sukkah. Say sukkah. There we go. You got to get that throat in there, remember? Okay. So does anybody like camping? Okay. There's a few. Is not many of you? Okay, good. So I can ridicule a little bit of people. Okay, here we go. So I've always wondered the, the camping. It's not been in something I've done. It's like I didn't grow up camping. And I always wonder, like, why are we spending so much time and money pretending to be homeless when we work so hard to have the house that we like so much? And then I started actually camping. And I, I went out, and we took our boys, and I started to see, like, actually, this is kind of nice. It's peaceful. You, you get out of your ordinary rhythms of life, and it's, it's kind of fun, but it's, uh, it's a little bit of a work. So God's people were commanded to do that very thing. Uh, there was a, a festival that the, God's people did every year called Sukkot. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Tents. Lots of different names for it. And so this is what they were instructed to do. They were instructed to one time every year from September 29th to October, 20, uh, to October 7th, they were to go into their, like, their yard, if you will, and build a tent for themselves. And their family was to live in the tent for seven days. And they were to design the tents with all these beautiful little bits of Eden. So reminders of God's provision for them in Eden, like fruits and plants and all that. But it was also a reminder and a way for them to embody what God did for their people, Israel, um, as they were sent out of uh, Egypt in their exodus. So when God redeemed the people, they lived in all these tents. God's tent was in the middle. His tabernacle was in the middle. And they would wander around the desert. So after that, God instructed the people to remember what it was like. And like I said, it was all a reminder of Eden. Here's what God's provision was originally like. Here's the beauty of the world. And here's God's provision in the desert. A little side note. Did you just hear when I said the Jewish people celebrate uh, the Feast of uh, Tents, of Tabernacles? It ends on October 7th with an event called Simchat, or Simchat Torah. It's the annual reading of the Torah. What happened on October 7th this year? So when Israel was attacked by Hamas, they were celebrating this festival. So they were, now whether they actually lived in tents or not, I don't know, but this was the festival that they were just, that's why they were attacked on Saturday, because it was Sabbath and they don't do things on Sabbath. So this is super connected to what's going on right now, okay? So here they are, multiple festivals a year, 
uh, multiple themes in this festival. Celebrating in Eden, but it was also an opportunity to remember the ingathering of all the nations to Israel. They were, they were instructed multiple times, welcome the outsider. Include the people that are among you that are not one of you. I want you to include them in this festival that reminds them of their redemption and of Eden. Include outsiders in this. So this is all in the mind of us. It could be in the mind of us when we get to this word, booth. Because what is Jonah doing for himself? This is not the time of that festival. This is to activate in our brains. Jonah is building for himself a mini Eden garden-like environment that does not include the outsiders, but expels the outsiders. Because what is he doing east of the city? He's sitting there, and what is he waiting for? He's waiting to find out what's going to happen to the city. He's like, okay, they repented, but does it last? Uh, they, they may have this moment, but are they, is this real? So I'm going to go out of the city and I'm just going to watch, kind of like judgmentally watch, waiting for to see what happens to those people. His heart has not changed towards them. So here he is creating a little tent that reminds us of Eden that is supposed to be an invitation to the nations, and yet he is judging the nations. And what happens as he's sitting there? What comes along? A plant. What? So he's sitting under a tent, and then this plant goes above him. What is Jonah's response to the plant? Exceeding joy. If you've been listening or walking through this, at what point does Jonah ever express a positive emotion in this book? Only here. He's exceedingly emotional elsewhere. And what was that emotion? Angry. He was exceedingly angry at God for not bringing justice on the Ninevites. But he's exceedingly happy when God provides him a plant. So Jonah, in this garden-like environment that he's making for himself, what, the only thing that brings him joy is when God provides something that benefits him and only him. In a space that's supposed to be a bringing in of other people, Jonah's only happy when he's built for himself a beautiful tent that does not bless the nations, but sits watching, enjoying them, waiting for them to be judged. What did Mackie say is the point of satire? Because this is satirical, right? This is ridiculous. Like, it's almost too perfect. A, a plant that goes up and, and he's building. It's like the story is too perfect. What's the point of the author trying to get? It's to expose as shameful something that we are all engaging in but don't want to acknowledge that we do. It's easy for us to point the finger at Jonah. 
what is, come on, dude, really? Like, how could you? But this is something we do as well. He's building for himself his own little Eden, his own little kingdom, his own way of life that is all about himself and not about the other. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we allow satire to put the mirror in our face, we also build ourselves false Edens. When we try to do things our way, for our sake, and for our benefit, without any thought to the outsider. We want our world, our schedule, our money, our life, to be dictated and directed by who? Me. My life. My desires. This is what I want my world to be like. And, and if we quote-unquote follow our own truth, my Eden gets to look a little bit different than yours. Your world gets to look in a line with your character. What you like, what you want. And you can structure your life and structure your way of being in a way that does not require the pursuit of the outsider. Now, what does God do with this? What does God do with the thing that brings us great joy but is only benefiting ourselves? Well, in this story, he sends a worm. I don't know if you're a visual person like me, but when you read a worm trying to eat a plant that's big enough to cover a, a person, I just think of a big worm. And that may be weird. I don't know how big it was. But he sends a worm. And what does a worm do? It, and notice the worm is appointed by God. The worm takes away that person's self-made shelter. The worm eats the plants, there's a scorching east wind that comes that removes the tents, and now Jonah is exposed. The question is, and oh, back up, worms are always a picture of decay and defilement. The, the Bible does not present worms as positive. When God's people are gathering enough food in the wilderness... If at any day they gather too much food and they don't rely on God's provision every single day, what happens to when they gather too much food for themselves? Worms. Same word. So the things that they were doing to benefit themselves, not trusting and relying on God, oh, I don't know if God's going to continue to bless me, so i got to get as much as I can because I'm, I, I don't know if he's going to continue. What does he do? Sends worms. Jonah, when he's building his own little world, what does God do? Sends a worm. This is an act of judgment upon, by God. And what do we know about the character of God in the story of Jonah that tells us what God is also doing? Because what does Jonah say God's character is like? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. For God to remove the very thing 
in our lives that we build for ourselves that only satisfies and fulfills us, that no longer needs us to depend on him, that is an act of God's mercy. Where has he done this in your life? When is there a time where God took away something that you loved or desired that was not what he ultimately desired for you? Maybe it was something that was a good thing, but it became something that was ultimate. And because it became an ultimate, it brought you exceeding joy that was not matched with the actual gift because it actually became a little bit of a mini God for you. And so what, what does God do? He sends something to remove that from us. It is an ultimate act of mercy when God removes things from your life that you desire that is not his desire for you. And what did this heat do to Jonah? Brought him, it made him become faint. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't an enjoyable experience. It wasn't, yay! It, it, he didn't like it. But yet it was still an act of God's mercy because he, he was removing your false sense of self, your false understanding of a world that is created in your own image. And he's giving you the opportunity to receive something from him. These are things that bring us great joy, but in his mercy, he knows they are not going to bring us fullness of life. Because where is fullness of life only found? In him. So if there's something that's not in line with his desires for you, those are actually bringing you death, even if they're making you exceedingly filled with joy. Talk about a dichotomy and attention. Every time God takes something away, or, and oftentimes this happens when he brings us to an end of ourselves where we can no longer build ourselves a sukkah or no longer build ourselves a false Eden, where we have to have those things removed from us. And yet every time God takes something away, he offers you something in return. Is it a... A dream that he's taken away. What is the new dream that God wants to replace that with? Was it a new, a new piece in replace of an old piece that actually led you away from him? Is it a hope that's found in him when you were hoping in something or someone else? Where have you built a world apart from the need for God. Because what do we see more than anything in the story is how did God create humans to be dependent upon him? And if we create independent worlds where we don't need him, rely on him, trust him, we're actually starting to experience a bit of death when he wants to give us abundance of life. So Jonah, 
builds himself a sukkah, builds himself a little false Eden. And this conversation continues with God. And so continuing into verse 9, God asks him a question that he has already asked him, but he's changed the subject. He asked him earlier, do you do well to be angry? And he was talking about what God did in Nineveh. Now he says, do you do well to be angry about the plant? I mean, he's, like, the plant was a big deal for him. And the Lord said this, verse 10. You pity the plants for which you did not labor, no, you did not make it grow. Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh? When I was doing um, some executive coaching work, um, I still do some coaching stuff here and there, but one of the things I started to pay attention to when I was working with teams and CEOs and all that fun stuff was how a group of people used language. And the language specifically that I paid attention to was how they used pronouns. Now, not in the modern sense of pronouns, okay? I'm not going there. But how they used who was we and us and who was they or them. I, I just paid attention to it. So in their normal conversation, I was just noticing who were they describing as the insiders, usually with us, we, this is how we do things, this is how we go about doing things, we like this, we're working in this direction. And then there was always a they or them. There was always a, yeah, they do it this way, or they're the problem, and whatnot. Usually it was like management as they and them, versus like employees as us and we. And there was this dichotomy between the management and the, and the staff. Sometimes it was based on buildings, right? This building worked a certain way, and so this is how we do it, or a department worked this way, and then they or them was these other people that do it differently than us. But what this language shows, and we all do this, for the record, what this shows is that there's this, uh, this line about who's in. This is my tribe. This is the we. This is us. This is how my understanding of our expected norms and behaviors here. And then there's the they and them, which is they do it this way. They're the outsiders. They're the different than us. And usually in these environments, there was a, an unwillingness for people to identify how they were doing something wrong and an overtly willingness to identify how they or them were doing something wrong. Following me? It's like, okay, hey, what's going wrong with the organization? Oh, they need to do this and then they need to do this and once they and do all these things and then everything will be great. And then you have to flip the conversation. Okay, but what do you have to own in this? And people were like dumbfounded by that question. It's like, what do you mean, me? Obviously, I'm not the problem. It's clearly they that are the problem. But when there's an insider understanding with a lack of self-awareness, it's very easy to require and desire justice for the other while desiring mercy for yourself. It's very easy to do that. Like, yeah, like, 
well, if you knew what I was dealing with, and that's why I didn't get the job done, or there's like, oh, give me mercy, give me mercy, but they or them, uh-uh, don't give them mercy. I don't want to know about their story and why they go about doing something. They need justice. They need to be fired. Something needs to be due to dealt with them. And once the world deals with them, everything will be all right. This desire for justice. Welcome to Jonah. L- completely lacking self-awareness. Completely lacking an understanding of what he's doing about who he's on the inside with. And all he's wanting is a desire for justice, a desire of punishment for the outsider. This is what one scholar, Philip Carey, says about, he says this, We must be clear where Jonah gets it wrong. It's not as if, as if we should never desire justice. It is good news when an oppressor is toppled, the terrorist caught, and the torturer brought to justice. The Lord does indeed, quote, take vengeance on his enemies, even Nineveh, as Nahum says of Nineveh in name 1-2. For he is the enemy of all who destroy his world. But the great danger is that instead of simply rejoicing at the vindication of the oppressed, we self-righteously identify ourselves as the oppressed, taking pity on ourselves and not on others. In our imaginations, the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies, an instrument of our own revenge rather than the righteous judge of all the earth. And he continues, But the biblical theme of God's repentance concerning evil means that the God of Israel is more inclined to save his enemies than to destroy them. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. And who is his character applied to in Jonah, they are them. Not just we. Not just those that are like me in our culture. Or like me. Or in alignment with my Eden. It's his enemies. Jonah does not destroy Nineveh. He does not overturn Nineveh. He transforms Nineveh. And if, we're, if we think about it, we are living in a day when there's a lot of us versus them. Everywhere. Uh, I don't know if you knew this also. Uh, we are T-minus 11 months to uh, another election. And I don't know if you remember what the last election was like, but it was just peace and goodness and joy for everybody involved. And we're all just so looking forward to the next 11 months, right? It just brings us great happiness. Who are the they in our culture? We are being formed as a society and as a group of people to say the they is anybody who has a different political opinion than I do. And what do we do with they? Justice, punish, demonize, not listen, 
We, want th- we sit out waiting for them to be destroyed. It's, and we're, we as God's people are now entering again into that season in our society that is doing everything it can to make sure the church follows suit. Rather than be citizens of God's kingdom that is in line with the God who's more inclined to save his enemies than to destroy them, that seeks to show his grace and mercy, his slow to anger, his abounding and steadfast love to even his enemies, we are to live in a way that says, oh, they, and just divide. That's not going to be allowed within SOMA. That's not how we're going to do things. We're not, this is not how it's going to continue. Sometimes the they is theological. We think of our tribe of theology, our tribe of our ecclesiology, how we do things, how we think, how we understand things. And then theologically, there's the they, them. There's the, the ones that do it differently than us. And what's happened for a hundred years and why there's so many different denominations in our world is because we keep theying people that different, have different theological nuances than we have. Don't get me wrong. Is there an inside orthodoxy and outside orthodoxy? Yes. Absolutely. But what is the gospel's call to both those that are like us and those that are different from us? What is the same action and the same motive and the same heart that God's people are supposed to have? You're sitting next to somebody who is your brother, who thinks like you, acts like you. What are you supposed to do to that person? Love them. You're sitting with somebody who's your enemy, who wants destruction for you, who is Nineveh, that's part of an Assyrian empire, that's looking to one day overtake the Israelite people. You're sitting with them. What is the Christian response to that? Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't matter what camp people are in. The Christian response is still the same. Love. Now how that works out practically, oh my goodness. I mean, one of the things that I'm seeing growing in our society that's concerning me is the growth of anti-Semitism. I mean, I was uh, a few years ago, I remember being in Poland. And we went to Auschwitz. And I remember going to two different camps in Auschwitz. And while we were there, there was some, like, injustice, like, focus going on in America around different things. And I remember standing there, like, in the chamber where they put the little pill that would become a gas that would end up killing them. And then going into the cremation spot right next to it. And be like, man... Humans are really able to go to the vilest places. Like, to human, humans have the capability still to do tremendous evil to one another. Tremendous evil. It's like, oh, we're, we're, we, we've gone beyond that. No, we haven't. We still have sin in our life. 
And all of a sudden, I'm like, that would, there's no, like, yeah, that's intense. But there's no way something like that will ever happen again. And, and now I'm like, whoa. Like, I mean, when you hear, you see news reports of Jewish people that are the most prone to get firearms now. They're the highest percentage of the population that are going to weapons training. Like asking their friends if Jewish people are welcome in certain areas because of all that they're seeing. That's terrifying to me. That's concerning. And what's fueling a lot of that? They, them. And, and, and God's historic people that we've been engrafted into, and I'm not going to go into all the theological stuff with that, it just seems that they're always at the, at the, the butt end of it. And, and yet, what's the Christian's fuel in the midst of this? Well, it's to love. It's the not to continue in the this is the inside versus the other. It's to create a whole nother way of doing things. To love our enemies and to love our brothers and sisters. This book ends. We're, we're at the end. And what's the last chapter, last verse of 11? It ends with a question. I wish I could talk about why in the world are you talking about cattle? Why is that the last word? You're like, mic drop? Wait, cattle? Like, why is, who cares about the cows, right? But it ends with a question. We want to know what Jonah responds with. Does Jonah go one way or does he go the other way? We, does he change? And it just ends with God's question. This is what Walter Crouch says. He says, God's question concludes the book, leaving Jonah's response in the minds of the reader. This lack of closure at the end of the narrative is a literary device used to involve the reader in the ideological conflict that propels the real plot of the book. Jonah's sense of justice versus God's boundless mercy. The final scene blurs the narrative framework so that the world of the text reaches out and envelops the world of the reader, forcing them to ask whose perspective they will adopt. As we come to the end of Jonah, the mirror is in front of every single one of us. This over-the-top picture of Jonah, this satire that many people consider, now envelops us and brings us, and as he says, forces us to ask Whose perspective will you adopt? Are you going to be like Jonah, who has an us-them focused on insider-outsider, continuing to create a world that is in your own making for people that are only like you? Or are you going to align your life with the character of God? who created the world perfectly, who provides for his people, who is slow, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who does not look to overthrow his enemies, but bring, bring justice still and yet transform them. 
who doesn't seek only his people, but seeks the whole world. Will you and I, with the mirror to our face, look ourselves in the eye and say, are we going to choose to be more like Jonah? Or are we going to be more like God? And every single day, we have that choice. Am I going to create my own world in my own likeness? Or am I going to recognize that I am an image bearer of God, created in his likeness? And if he is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then that's how I should extend it. Why? Because that's the very thing that I've received in Christ. In Christ, God did not treat me like Jonah would have treated me and you. He extended his grace. He extended his mercy. Does he allow sin to go, remain to, unpunished? No. How does he punish sin? In himself. He takes on sin. He takes on what is deserving of justice. All the vile that humanity is. Jesus went to the cross as an ultimate sign of his grace and mercy. And instead of saying who's in versus who's out, he now says all are welcome to the table. All of you, by placing your faith in him, you are invited from being an enemy who has an invitation to be loved to now being a child who can experience that love who can walk in love, who can receive his grace. I don't know how you are being forced in line with Jonah. Is God, what God is doing in your life. But the end with the cliffhanger is an invitation. Who, whom this day do you choose to follow is another way. Scripture says it. And Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we get a, the chance every day to say the same thing. God, I'm not building my own Eden after my own self. Help me build your kingdom. Help me be part of your way. Help me remember your Eden that is to come and that what has already been.